I've had people ask me why I like to wear robes, why I like to wear the alb or the robe and the stole, why I wear vestments on a regular basis when I'm preaching, when I'm celebrating Holy Communion and doing it in the church setting. Why do I wear vestments? Well, it goes way back in time, back 23 years, 22 years really, back to when I first came back from North Carolina from my graduate study at Duke University. I had been a local pastor in a congregation, or actually four congregations there in North Carolina, and then I came back and I, they didn't have an appointment for me, they didn't have a full-time appointment for me at that time. This was in 1992. And so they sent me to a part-time appointment and gave me salary support to get me up to minimum salary. And I was there for half a year until they moved me back on into Dallas to a church there in Oak Cliff to Cockrell Hill. But for a half a year, I was a pastor at a three-point charge in Northwest Hunt County, Celeste Kingston in White Rock United Methodist Churches. I was there for a half a year. And while I was there, I got to know old Freeman Pearson. Now, Freeman Pearson was a retired Nazarene pastor who had come over to the Methodist Church and had been preaching in the Methodist Church until he retired. And he would worship at the White Rock and the Kingston Methodist Churches, sometimes going to one, sometimes going to the other. Well, the Kingston United Methodist Church was a wonderful congregation, beautiful people. And at the time that I was there, while they had air conditioner in the form of window units, they didn't run the air conditioning during the sermon. Why? Because you couldn't hear the pastor. So when it came time to preach, they'd turn off the AC and I'd have to preach in a hot, stuffy room. So I didn't wear any kind of a robe or an alb or anything. I just stood there in my slacks and clergy shirt and I would preach. And so I'm in the middle of a sermon one Sunday. It's probably in the middle of August, probably when it was like 105 degrees, unlike today. It wasn't raining. It was hot and humid and icky and sticky. And I'm preaching and I'm sweating and I'm uncomfortable and everybody else is uncomfortable and I'm really getting into it. I'm really preaching that message. And suddenly old Freeman Pearson stands up in the middle of the congregation and says, Brother Greg, your fly's open. <laughs> well, I immediately maneuvered to the pulpit and went zip and finished my sermon from behind the pulpit. And the next Sunday, I wore an alb. And I wore it every Sunday since. It's too hot to wear anything other than the alb in the summer, so I usually wear albs in the summer, and I go to the black robe when it gets cold. Whew. And it's a good thing I wear the robe, too, because sometimes I'll get back to my office, and I'll take the robe. It's happened already once since I've been here. I'll take the alb off, and I'll look down, and uh-huh. So you should be thankful that I wear the owl. You should be thankful that I wear a robe. You should be thankful that I like to wear vestments because they help to shield me. They protect me and they protect you. They really help to remove me from the equation. I don't have to worry about what I look like, how I dress. I could be dressed in entirely relaxed street clothing with a t-shirt. It, it, it wouldn't really matter because... I am wearing an outer robe or a vestment that shields or hides me. I don't have to be self-conscious about myself because I am wearing a vestment of the historic church. 
in many ways hidden inside a robe that is symbolic of our common baptism together. Self-consciousness. Self-consciousness. Being aware of yourself to the point that it gets in the way. Indeed, distractions. When I put on the alb, I can set myself aside. I can set myself aside and be focused in on preaching the gospel, focused in on proclaiming the good news, focused in on the message that Jesus is calling me to preach, focused in, not on myself, not on my own will, not on my own understanding, but on the understanding that is flowing from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why I use the lectionary to determine the preaching pattern for the year. I, I don't like to do series because series depend upon the self too much. Instead, I prefer the lectionary for the historic church and the directions that it has given to us to, to hear the word read and proclaimed. I have to set myself out of the way so that I can focus in on Jesus. It's easy to become distracted. Distracted from focusing in on Jesus, from following Jesus. There are many cares and many concerns to draw our attention. There are the, there, there are the bad things. There's prejudice, there's greed, there's desire, there's self-will, there's a desire to get what you want to the exclusion of what God wants for you. And yes, there are even good things that can distract us. Family and friends, the good of the community. Even church can be a distraction. In fact, sometimes, especially church can be a distraction to following Jesus. Especially at annual conference time when we clergy get together and vote on things. I would rather not do that, friends, because it becomes a distraction to following Jesus for me. It's so easy to allow the waves and the wind of this life, the storms that are raging around us, to draw our attention away from Christ. The many agendas, some of them good, but most of them not, call us to follow something other than Christ and the way that Christ would have us live. They distract us from following Jesus. And that's what happened in today's reading. That's what happened to Peter in our reading today. We've just come through in, here in, in chapter 14 the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We've had this miracle provisioning, this miracle meal in which 5,000 plus people have been nourished by the grace of Jesus, nourished by His presence, and indeed nourished by the food that He provides, both spiritual and physical. We've had this beautiful story of the feeding of the 5,000. They've experienced these miracles, this miracle and many other miracles. They've, they've heard Him teach. They've seen Him work wonders. And now Jesus has sent them away, sent them across the Sea of Galilee, sent them ahead of him, and he's gone up the hill to pray. And night has come, and now morning is coming. And here the disciples are on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they're experiencing a problem that is not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. You see, the Sea of Galilee is located about 680 feet below sea level. The surface of the lake, of Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, is over 680 feet below sea level. It sits down in like a depression or a bowl along the Jordan Rift Valley. And 
In the evening and early morning, winds come blowing down out of the desert to the west into this bowl. And they create a cyclone around the center of the lake. And it causes wind and waves and choppy seas. It causes fog to rise up and it gets to be spooky and scary. And if you're in a boat, you can probably get seasick from it. It's not fun. It's a bad storm situation. And it happens frequently on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are stuck in this morass. They're stuck in this wind. They're stuck in these waves. And they see Jesus coming towards them, walking towards them, and they're terrified. It's a ghost, they cry out, as you would. If you're sitting out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the storms are raging, you're holding on to the boat for dear life, and you see Jesus walking towards you, and he's not walking across no placid water, friends. It's choppy, wind-driven, wavy water. And he's a tootling on towards you. You're going to scream and think it's a ghost too. But he cries out, replies to them, answers their call by saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Well, that's good news. Jesus is here now, finally. The storm can cease. We can get back to doing what we're supposed to be doing. This night can be over. And Peter wants to be with him. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter has enough sense to know that it's best to get permission before you do something silly like walk on water. I've walked on water before. Yeah, I have. I've walked on water. When I was the monastery in Boston, you know, it gets cold up in Massachusetts. And this Texas, this southern Texas boy hadn't really ever seen a river freeze over before until that winter in 1990 when I was at the monastery and I looked out the window and I saw that the Charles River across the memorial drive from the monastery, the Charles River had frozen over. Wow! I got to go see this. So I go out, Rusty goes out with me, so does David. We go out, we dodge across the cars on the icy Memorial Drive to the Charles River Bank and we look out over this river and it's frozen! Rusty says, Rusty was always naughty, Rusty says, we can walk on that. Well, Rusty, you're skinny. You're skinny and short. You're lighter than air itself. Of course you can walk on it. You could have walked on it when it was water water, not now, not just now. And he's ah! And he steps out onto the water, the frozen water, and he walks out a little ways. And he turns and looks at me. Come on, come on. It's okay. And dummy me, I do it. I step out on the frozen water and walk a few steps and stand there and look down at the ice and say to myself, uh-uh. And I turn around and I get back ashore as fast as I can. But I've walked on water. Well, here we've got Peter stepping out of the boat onto water water, friends, with his eyes, his attention, his faith focused on Jesus. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. I want you to pay attention to that came toward Jesus. The image here is an important one. Peter is walking on the water toward 
Jesus. Even the grammar here in the New Testament Greek, even the, the grammar here tells us that the focus is important. And so long as Peter's focus is on Jesus, toward Jesus, oriented towards Jesus, so long as his focus is on Jesus, he's okay. He's walking toward Jesus. Here we have a grammatical construction called the accusative case, where Jesus is the direct object. He's walking toward Jesus. And so long as Jesus remains the direct object, in the accusative case, everything's fine. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. The strong wind now takes the accusative case. It becomes the direct object. Instead of Jesus, now we have the strong wind taking the place of the direct object. And when that happens, what happens? He becomes frightened and he begins to sink. When Christ is no longer our direct object, when Christ is no longer in the accusative case in our life, when we focus not on Jesus, but on anything else, we too start to sink. Last week I talked about faith. I talked about the Greek noun for faith, pistis, and the Greek verb for faith, pistuo. You'll see those notes in your bulletin. And I pointed out that Faith is an action based upon belief, sustained by confidence, the ABCs of faith. I can believe that chair is going to hold me. I can believe it with assurance because I've just been sitting in it. I know it's strong. I know it's sturdy. I know it's made of metal. I know it has some soft cushions. I know this chair will hold my weight. I believe it. I believe it's true. I have an experience that tells me it's true. I have confidence that it's real. I believe that chair is going to hold my weight. But until I place that belief into action and actually sit on the chair, I don't have faith. I have belief, but I don't have faith. Sitting in Jean's lap over there is faith in Jean's lap, but not in that chair. Sitting in this chair means I have faith in this chair, the direct object. Likewise with Jesus. We only have faith in Jesus when our belief is focused in on Him and we are acting upon that belief. He is our direct object. He is our focus, like Peter walking on the water. And we are acting in faith, like Peter walking on the water. And so long as our focus is on Jesus, so long as He is our direct object, we're okay. But the instant our focus goes off Jesus and goes on anything else, be it good or bad, be it laudable or a sin, it matters not, when anything else takes the place of focus, 
When anything else takes the place of focus and the direct object of our lives, we start sinking. Peter looked around and he saw the waves. He saw the wind. And he grew frightened. And the instant his focus went from Jesus to the wind, went from Jesus to the waves, the instant his focus was off Jesus, he started to sink. Lord, save me, he cried out. He knew who to go to. I mean, usually Peter, he sticks his left foot in his mouth all the way up to his shin, friends. He's a wonderful example because he describes us so beautifully. Well, here he did exactly the right thing. When he got his focus off of Jesus, he immediately knew where to turn. Lord, save me. And that's what we should do. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith. He didn't say you of no faith. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? The word doubt is rooted in a Greek concept for letting go, dropping. Why did you drop me? Why did you drop your attention from me? Why did you drop your focus from me? Why did you drop me? Oh, you of little faith. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Oh, you of little faith. It's easy. It's easy to let your faith diminish. It's easy to take your focus off of Jesus. It's easy to get distraction, distracted. There are many distractions in this world. Think about it. We're kind of living in an insane age, in the crazy years. One of my favorite authors is Robert A. Heinlein, and he talked about the last decades of the 20th and the first decades of the 21st century as being the crazy years. Well, he was absolutely right about that. They have been the crazy years, and they're insane now. Think about it. We've got... Christians being butchered in Iraq and Syria. We've got Palestinians being killed by, in, in huge numbers in Gaza. We've got Israelis being killed in Israel. We've got people being killed in the Ukraine. We've got people being killed in the streets here in the United States. We've got this horrible situation in Missouri with Michael Brown being killed. And with... Root, looting and rioting, violence, and with police reaction and overreaction. We've got all of this stuff going on. It's easy to get distracted, to get our focus off of Jesus and onto these other things. How do we handle the situation in Iraq? How do we handle the situation in Israel? How do we handle the situation in the Ukraine? How do we handle the situation in Africa with Ebola? How do we handle the situation in America, in Missouri, and elsewhere where we have racial discord and fighting, where we have rioting in the streets and people being killed? How do we handle these things? And it's so easy to get off focus. And when we get off focus, is it any wonder that we begin to sink. That we begin, like Peter, to sink. When we get our focus off of Jesus, when He's no longer our direct object, we do start to sink. Now, all these other subjects, they need to be addressed. They need to be the indirect objects in our focus. But when we cannot deal with them, we cannot successfully address them until and unless Jesus 
is our direct object. Because if Jesus is our direct object, and the way he called us to live is our direct object, and his teachings for us is our direct object, and his sacrifice for us is our direct object, and all that he is and all that he has for us is our direct object, unless Jesus is our direct object, we cannot address these other issues. We just can't do it. If we depend upon ourselves and our own understandings, we, like Peter, will begin to sink. But if we focus in on Jesus and on his message and on the gospel that he has for us, the self-sacrificing love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, the message, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. So many people want to try to argue away who is our neighbor. Who is my neighbor? You know, maybe, maybe we can get away with saying, I don't have to be nice to this person. I don't have to love that person because they're not really my neighbor. Sorry, that won't work, friends. Uh, one of my, when I was growing up, I used to love to watch Sesame Street. And on Sesame Street, they had a beautiful little song. Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood? In your neighborhood? Oh, who are the people in your neighborhood? They're the people that you meet each day. Really? Actually, that's a beautiful definition of the Greek word for neighbor, which literally means near one. One who is near to you. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, spatially, near to you, sitting next to you, living across the street from you, in the town next to you. We could keep on going, couldn't we? God calls us to love the Lord, our God, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And that means everyone, friends. And Jesus also says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Oh, well, maybe I can just get away with liking them, okay? No. Sorry. We'll talk about love at some other time. Like is insufficient. We're called to love, which means considering their needs as being essential to our own needs. We can address these issues. The violence in the streets in Missouri, out-of-control police, War in Israel and Palestine and Gaza. Potential war in the Ukraine and Russia. War and the slaughter of Christians. Children in Iraq and Syria. Ebola in Africa and elsewhere. And all the other horrible events that are going on in the world these crazy years. We can focus in on them and sink. Or we can focus in on Christ and His calling for us and address them with Him as our central focus, with Jesus as our direct object. We can address all these other plaguing issues that the world brings to us. We can address it with love, with hope, and with the peace of God which passes understanding and the calling to live as the hands and the feet of Jesus in a world that needs to hear the good news of the love of God. When you're walking in the stormy seas of your life, when you're walking following Jesus in the stormy seas of your life, my brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to keep Jesus as your direct object. 
Keep Jesus as the center of your focus. Keep Jesus as your direct object. And you will not sink. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. been listening to a sermon by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2014 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information and for other sermons by Dr. Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.